Now let's turn to the fifth chapter of James, bearing down on the uh, end of this this fine little epistle. And uh, today, James has in mind a topic that uh, makes us very uncomfortable. His uh, his penchant, as we've seen over and over again, is to afflict us right in the areas where we feel most uh, most at ease, and his concern in this chapter is with our possessions. We uh, we always noted at Peninsula Bible Church, where I was a pastor for a number of years, that the sermons that were least likely to be taken from the racks were those that had to do with materialism and uh, a Christian and his riches, his possession. Uh, we just don't like to face these things. But uh, the writers of Scripture keep, uh, keep confronting us with facts that we need to face, and this is one of them. There are two sections in this, uh, in this paragraph from 5 through 11. The first has to do with, uh, with oppressors, those who gain their wealth by oppressing other people. That subject is found in verses 1 through 6, and then 7 through 11 deals with those who are oppressed, uh, those who are, are, being, uh, who are having their, their money taken away from them uh, unjustly, by unjust means. And uh, so whether you're the oppressor or the oppressed this morning, you'll find yourself somewhere in this paragraph. I learned the hard way in the first service that, that I simply could not get through both of these paragraphs in the amount of time that we have. So we'll just take the first six verses this morning and then uh, follow up with a word to the oppressed next week. Let's begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the ministry that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded or rusted is the word. Their rust will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, or as the New American Standard translates, the Lord of Sabaoth. Uh, that phrase in English is a transliteration of the Hebrew a name for God, the Lord of Sabaoth. Sabaoth means hosts. He's the Lord of the uh, of the uh, heavenly hosts, uh, of the angelic hosts, of the armies of earth. He is the sovereign, almighty God. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not oppressing you. Misery and money often seem to go together. Uh, not necessarily so, but that's often the case. Money makes some people miserable. And uh, it's not wealth, per se, that makes us unhappy. It's ill-gotten gain, money that, uh, that we've acquired improperly, or money that is spent improperly that makes us miserable. And it's uh, both of these improper uses or acquisitions of money that, that James has, uh, has in mind here in this passage. You'll notice in, uh, 
in verse 3, he says, uh, You have hoarded wealth in the last days. You have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. They had apparently acquired uh, wealth in the form of grain and garments and precious metals. Those were the three commodities that normally were a sign of wealth in these in these days. He says, you've stockpiled uh, gold and silver, hoarded it up for yourself. You've bought numerous garments for yourself. Garments were often very, uh, very expensive. And uh, they were not particularly worn. They were more for uh, an extravagant show of wealth than for any other purpose. And uh, they had stockpiled food and and grain uh, for themselves. It's not the acquisition of things that's, that's wrong. It's rather our tendency to, to acquire things just for ourselves. To spend money on uh, memberships in country clubs and tennis clubs and racquetball clubs and to acquire more and more clothes far beyond what we need uh, just as a way of demonstrating our wealth or to buy bigger and better automobiles, not because we need uh, better transportation, but simply because we want to make a better show or to buy condos at uh, Sun Valley and, and McCall and, and uh, to multiply our, our wealth ostentatiously, to live in luxury and, and to indulge ourselves. That's the problem. It's not what we have that matters. It's what has us. It's what preoccupies us. And it's our tendency to to acquire things solely for ourselves, to selfishly indulge ourselves. It's that 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 concerns uh, the apostle here. Jesus had a great deal to say about uh, this tendency to acquire things. In Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says, Don't store up treasure on earth where uh, moths... Uh, eat things. They devour your, your garments. And, and where insects uh, eat your goods. And where your gold and silver uh, rust away. We buy uh, insecticides and mothballs and, and rust-proof paint and uh, security systems to protect our things, but uh, nothing lasts, nothing endures. Either the commodity itself wears out or our enjoyment of it comes to an end. We all know that. We, we believe we have to have some possession to make us happy, and, and we slave uh, away in order to purchase that, that thing, and then we purchase it, and it doesn't mean anything to us after a while. We learned that as children when we bought toys that we thought we had to have, and then after we acquired the toy, we didn't want it. We discarded it. The only difference is that as we get older, we acquire bigger and better and more expensive toys, more things, and they never satisfy us. The more we get the more we want. So Jesus uh, is trying to warn us away from that tendency to buy things that don't last, don't endure, meaningless, don't profit us in the long run. He says, don't, don't store up treasure on earth where, where things tend to decline in value. But store up treasure in heaven. By that he meant invest in things that are enduring, that have eternal significance, that are spiritually... Uh, significant. Uh, invest your, your time and energy in acquiring God-like character because that's what endures. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that it's faith and hope and love that, it, that abide. They last. Those things endure. 
in uh, the, our efforts to see people one for, for Christ, our, our labor to extend the kingdom of God, to, to draw people into a relationship with Christ by prayer and by witness and by our gifts of money. That, that's storing up treasure in, in heaven. That's what will last. Nothing else endures. And uh, what, our, what our Lord is trying to do is to keep us from, from investments that are, that are poor investments. They don't pay off in the end. Uh, he realizes that our life does not consist in the abundance of, of possessions that we have. So he says, don't, don't store up treasure on earth. Store up treasure in, in heaven. Because, he says, where your treasure is, that's where your mind will be. He uses the word heart. But by heart, the, the Greeks meant the intellectual process, processes. We tend to be preoccupied with where our treasure is. If, if our treasure is gold, then that's what we think about. We lie awake at, at night thinking about how we can acquire more gold, how we can trade and deal and sell and buy and make more money, and, and that's where our mind is. And so we don't think about spiritual things. Where our heart is, where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. And the problem is, as, as Jesus goes on to say, if we become preoccupied with things, ultimately, it will divert us away from God himself. He says the, the eye is like the, the lamp of the body. It lets in light. If the eye is single, the whole body will be full of light. If the eye is blind, he says, how great is that darkness? The eye is the means by which light gets into the body. And uh, if we have our eye on things, we are blind and our whole body will be dark, morally dark. But if our eye is on God and the pursuit of his kingdom and the extension of it, if we long with all of our heart for righteousness, then our whole body will be full of light, he says. Moral light. Because, as he goes on to say, you, you, you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is the Aramaic uh, word for money. He doesn't say you shouldn't serve God and mammon. He says you can't. And if we're preoccupied with money and buying and, and acquiring our heart is into acquisition of, of things, it will take our eye off of God and things will become the idols that we serve. He says, you'll end up hating God. That's, that's what's so, so destructive about materialism. You will despise God. Money will become your God. That's what you trust in. That's what you believe in. That's what you rely upon. We're all prone to that sort of thing. So Jesus says, don't, don't store up treasure there doesn't last, doesn't endure, doesn't satisfy. We, we hoard up wealth to our own destruction. Paul has somewhat the same idea in mind in 1 Timothy 6. Would you turn back to that chapter with me? 1 Timothy 6. Unfortunately, the Bible has a lot to say about money, and it's all very condemning. Because all of us basically are materialists at heart. I hope you know that. You don't have to have money to be a materialist. You can be poor as a church mouse and, and believe that, that matter is what, what matters. And, and you're a materialist. Uh, it occurred to me one day that, that really a, a, a Christian who is a materialist is no better off than a communist. At the heart of all Marxist uh, political belief is that 
that uh, matter is all that there is. But if we're materialists, we believe that matter is all that matters. And so in, in a very, uh, on a very practical level, we're materialists. We're thinking that matter is all that matters. And then it doesn't. Now, on balance, it's, it's not wrong to have things. We need to understand that. It's not wrong to have a condo. It's not wrong to have a, a, a good car or a more recent. That's not the point. It's that when we pursue these things to the exclusion of everything else that we get ourselves in trouble. Now, notice what, what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. As Cool Hand Luke says, you've got to get your mind right. Or as uh, Bob Dylan says, you've got to have a satisfied heart. If you don't have anything but God, we ought to be content. Because that's all we really need. Paul says we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. You can't take it with you. But if we have food and clothing, the word for clothing here is really the, the word for covering, and it probably applies to shelter as well as, as, as clothing for the body. If we had food and clothing and shelter... We'll be content with that. I wonder, would I, if I didn't have anything else but enough food for this day and, and enough clothing to keep me warm and shelter tonight, if I had that and nothing else, would I be content? Paul says we ought to be. People who want to get rich, in other words, those of us who want more, he says, fall into temptation and a, a trap. The satanic trap and in the many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction causes irretrievable loss. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, he doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. There's nothing wrong with money and there's nothing wrong with having money. But the pursuit of money, if, if that consumes us, if that's an obsession with us, if we love it, woe be unto us. The love of money, he says, is, is the root from which all kinds of evil spring. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with, with many griefs. It, it may cause you to, to, to fall away from the faith, to turn your back on God and, and, and walk away from Him. So it's a very, very serious thing. To the contrary, in verse 11, you, man of God, flee all of this. Flee from love of money and and from the desire to, to gain it, from, from that insatiable want that drives us for more. You, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. That's what really matters in this world. It's the pursuit of godlike character. And that's what will satisfy us, as he goes on to say. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. Notice he doesn't say, command those who are rich in this world to give away all their money. That's never the command in Scripture. Jesus said that to the rich young ruler because he realized that money was what was keeping him from God. His money was his God. And uh, our Lord, uh, because of his perceptive insight into the heart of man, knew that was his hang-up. And so he pointed it out to him. But that, God never says that to everyone. In the Old Testament, the, the tithe was a, was a level 10%. It wasn't a graduated tithe. It wasn't that the, the more wealthy had to give more money. They did proportionately. 
But the point of the Old Testament is it's all right to accumulate wealth as long as you give. Paul goes on in verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You want the good life, he says? Well, it doesn't come through the acquisition of cars and clothes and condos. It comes through giving and sharing. Three things, he says. Number one, if you're rich, don't be haughty, don't be proud, don't be arrogant, because there is a tendency on the part of the wealthy to look down on the poor, to think, you know, we don't have to grub for our existence like that, or above it all. And secondly, there's a tendency to trust it. We think that money will buy us anything. And we know, if we stop and think for a moment, that it will not. It will not buy health. It will not buy the love of someone we desperately, whose love we desperately want. It will not buy the affection of our children. Uh, it won't buy back someone that's very precious to us that's been lost through death. Money will not. There's a limit to what money can do. It's also very uncertain. It can be lost like that. Paul says it's very uncertain. Don't trust it. Don't put your hope in money. Put your hope in God, he says, who who richly supplies us with everything for our enjoyment. Do you want the good life, he says? Then be generous and share and give. That's always the admonition to the wealthy. Not give away all your money and redistribute it. It's just don't, don't be preoccupied with selfish indulgence and with luxury living and, a, and a, an extravagant lifestyle to the exclusion of others. So that, that you know, it's, it all becomes selfish accumulation rather than giving. Just be generous and give and share to those that are, that are in need. And in that way you will take hold of the life that is truly life. In other words, you'll really be living. You'll have the good life. Now let's turn back to, to James again. James says, listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted. Your grain is beginning to, uh, to, to rot. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver has rusted through disuse, unuse. Their rust will testify against you and, and eat your flesh. Uh, money not only burns a hole in our pockets, it will consume us. He says, the, the rust of your gold, the fact that it's unused, that you've hoarded it for yourself, testifies against you. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. It's the hoarding of money instead of the giving, the, the generous spirit that, uh, that causes us so much, uh, so much uh, distress. Now, the second thing that, that he says is that this is not only money that is improperly used, it's improperly gained. Verse 4, look, he says, the wages you fail to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Money does talk. And it can speak against us. To withhold money from a laborer in those days was a very serious thing. And these were laborers that had done what they were asked to do. They contracted with the landowner to mow his fields. They, they did so and, and uh, he defaulted. It's not that the payment was, uh, was delayed. He, he defaulted. He did not pay. 
uh, a salary or a wage that was legitimately theirs. They had done the work, and, and he refused to pay. It's a very serious thing in those days because they didn't operate uh, out of a monthly or a semi-monthly salary as, as we do. The, each day's uh, work uh, called for a day's wage because they usually lived uh, very much a hand-to-mouth existence, particularly the laboring class. And uh, they would take the money that was given them at the end of the day and they would go to the market and they would buy enough food for the next day so that if you withheld wages from your labor at the end of the day, that meant he went hungry the next day. And as a matter of fact, in the law, that was, that, that was, that was condemned. You, you must, the law says, pay your, your laborers uh, a good wage at the end of the day so they can provide for themselves and, and their family. It's a very serious thing. To owe someone money who has performed a service for you. Uh, Paul says in, in, in the book of Romans, Owe no one anything. It's a present tense. Don't keep on owing anyone anything except to love them. There is one debt that we can never discharge, and that's, that's the debt of love. We owe that to everyone. We'll never satisfy that obligation. But, but uh, we're not to, to owe money anyone else. Now, he's not talking about paying on, on time, because that's a, that's a contractual arrangement. And as long as we make our payments on time, then we're fulfilling Paul's uh, command. But it's wrong for us to owe someone money and not pay it back. If we can't pay it back, then we ought to go to them and make some arrangement to pay it back. If, you, if you're so poverty-stricken at this point in your life that there's no way you can fulfill that obligation, then the thing for us to do is to go and try to work out a payment plan. But it's wrong to keep on owing someone. When I was in college, uh, I worked up in Colorado usually during the, during the summers in order to make uh, enough money to go back to school the next year. My father paid for my my tuition, but I had to uh, pay my living expenses during the school year, and I usually had it figured out pretty close, and, and I worked one summer at a, at a camp up in the Middle Park area of Colorado, and uh, the first month I worked, uh, we were all paid. The second uh, uh, month, he came to us and said, I, we're falling behind financially, we're not doing well, I'm not going to be able to pay you this month, but I'll pay you at the end of the summer. So summer came around, and he still didn't have any money. He said, well, I'll pay you as soon as you get home. And, and we got back to Dallas, and uh, he disappeared. His uh, phone number uh, was unlisted, and uh, he didn't return any of the letters that I sent. And I had no idea how to contact him, and, uh, and I, was, I was upset and concerned and worried because I didn't know how in the world I was going to make it through uh, the first part of the year. And uh, you see, he was causing that distress because he was not willing to pay what he owed. It hurts. It's a violation of the law of love. As it worked out, as God worked it out, I ran into that man at a filling station and uh, he was a little bit chagrined to see me and I came around to the, to the window and reminded him that he owed me some money and he quickly wrote out a check and I ran down to the bank and sure enough it didn't bounce but uh, the Lord got me out of that one but it was a very distressing time that's what we do to people when we don't pay our bills hurts it's a violation of the law of love and God help us in a in a town the size of Boise if we're Christians and we don't pay our bills because everyone knows uh, Bud Hinkson used to tell a story about Alexander the Great. 
I've never seen it anywhere in a history book. I suspect it's one of those apocryphal stories that grows up around a great man, but uh, a historical figure. But uh, the story is told of Alexander reviewing his troops one day, and, and he was told that there was an officer in the ranks who had a debt that he would not pay. And uh, Alexander called him uh, into his tent, and he said, What's your name, soldier? And he said, Alexander, because Alexander was a very common name in those days. And Alexander the Great said, Either pay your debt or change your name. <laughs> and uh, I suspect that's what the Lord says to us. It, it, we cannot call ourselves Christians and go through life and defraud other people. At least don't tell anybody you're a Christian if you're doing that. And in a town like, uh, like Boise, you know, to give witness to our faith and then to defraud others financially is, is, a, is, a, is a real blight, not only on your own witness, but the church. It's a very serious thing. James goes on in this paragraph to say, You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you, and perhaps we have not gone that far. He's talking about the injustice that's often uh, worked toward those who... Uh, who can't help themselves in the courts. Uh, the poor then as now could hardly get a day in court. They were unjustly treated. And this apparently what was, is what was happening. And uh, James calls it to their attention that the, the judge is coming. He says in verse, uh, verse 3, You have hoarded wealth in the last days. The last days is the... The era in which we live is the period between the first and second comings of Christ. And James' point is that the time is counting down. It's, it's like uh, the countdown before a, a moonshot. Every day draws us closer to the day when the Lord will appear, the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the, the sovereign, almighty God of the universe. And... Uh, there will, be a, there will be a reckoning then. We don't like these things, but we have to face the fact that even we as Christians will, will have to account for what we've done in our bodies, whether they're, they're good or evil things. We'll not be judged ultimately and finally not, uh, will not be condemned, but we will have to give an accounting. We'll be called on the carpet, so to speak. We'll face a loving Heavenly Father, and we'll have to answer he says uh, in verse 4, The cries of the harvesters, those who had been defrauded of their funds, have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Uh, as someone has put it, God's, the mills of God's justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. Though, uh, though he waits with patience, in the end, everyone is going to, to be judged. It, as Les Goodrich uh, said once, all in all, it's a very fair system. We look at life today and we, we see so many inequities. So many people are oppressed, people in the, in the third world, and those that are under uh, tyrannical uh, totalitarian governments who hardly have, have, a, have a chance. And we say, why doesn't God uh, uh, deal justly with all of the, the evil in the world? Well, in the first place, if he did, he'd have to judge right across the board, and who of us would be exempt? We'd all be judged. In the second place, he's waiting patiently for people to repent. We'll talk more about this next week. But God loves even uh, tyrants. 
and he's he's drawing them to himself. There was a there was an article in Christianity Today or a poem in Christianity Today last month entitled "Loving Kindness One and Two that uh, stated it it well. God's strong arm extends to selfish bullies, willful, crude, endures the self-deceived, ignores the rude, forbears with murder, incest does not quell. And when my arm would sweep them all to hell, his little finger draws them to his heart. That's why God doesn't judge, because he's waiting for men, uh, for, for men and women to repent and to come to him. But there is a time coming when everyone will have to stand before God. He says it's, it's, it's to indulge yourself and to live a life of luxury in view of his coming is like fattening oneself in the day of slaughter. It's a very powerful metaphor. He's talking about an animal that's uh, fattening itself uh, for the day of slaughter. doesn't even realize uh, that it's, it's contributing to its own demise. When, when I was in high school, uh, I went to Duncanville, Texas, which is a, a rural high school the south of Dallas, and I joined the 4-H club. And one of my 4-H club projects was to raise a pig. And... Uh, I was given a sow, and she had a litter, and, and we sold off most of the pigs, but we kept one to fatten for our own use. So we put her, put this little pig in a little pen like this with a, with a trough and uh, kept that thing full of food, scraps, and all kinds of goodies. And, and that little pig sat there and just ate and ate and ate and ate. She got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and I'd go out there and look at her every day and, and think, you stupid pig, you're just uh, fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. Well, that's, that's what James is saying here. There's a rather grisly fulfillment of this prediction. As a matter of fact, James wrote probably in the mid-60s uh, of the first century. And uh, in, in 70 A.D., when Titus overran Jerusalem, he gathered up all of the overweight Jews in the city and tortured them to death because he realized that they probably had resources that no one else had. Most of the Jews starved during that time. But uh, certain ones had caches of food and money set aside, and it was those that Titus, uh, Titus slaughtered. But uh, it wasn't just Titus' judgment that James is concerned. It's the judgment of God. It's not easy to talk about these things, and all of us flinch when we, we realize that uh, the judge is coming. But it, it really does sober us up. It makes us take a very serious look at our priorities. Where are we investing our lives? What are we spending our time doing? The older I get, the more convinced I become that, that C.S. Lewis is right. There is no earthly joy in the long run, he says. Now, that doesn't mean that life is grim. I don't find it that way at all. I think life is fun. But the joy comes from investing our lives in things that really matter. I came from a fairly well-to-do family, and I've had a lot of things in my life, but I, I disco I've discovered that things just don't satisfy at all. They never satisfy. That's a bottomless pit. The more you get, the more you want. What satisfies is uh, extending the kingdom of God, sharing Christ with others, praying for those that are in need, uh, growing in your knowledge of Scripture, growing in your obedience, to God's uh, call and claims upon your life. Those are the things that matter. That's what satisfies. That's storing up treasure in heaven. And uh, in the long run, that's the only thing that really matters. There's a bit of joy here and there. Uh, 
Lewis described it as serendipities, happy happy surprises along the way. But let me tell you, the benefits of investing your life and your money and your time and your energy for the extension of the kingdom of God, for the pursuit of righteousness, has benefits that far outweigh any benefit that you get from buying a new stereo or a new car or a new set of uh, golf clubs or anything else that your heart desires. Those things do not satisfy. But God does. Uh, One of the, the... good memories of my life was a Bible study that Carolyn and I had with a number of of young men and women who were in the business school at Stanford University. And as it turned out, many of those people in that Bible study uh, came to be very wealthy people. One of the couples was the Candlesses, who owned Candlesses Restaurant in uh, Seattle and in San Francisco. Another was a professional football player who's just finishing his uh, 10th year with the Minnesota Vikings, and he's a very wealthy young man. And another was a young man whose father had been an official in the Communist Party in China. He was a Chinese-American. Uh, he, he had come to America when he was quite small. His father was a very influential man, or had been, until the uh, Red Guards uh, put him in prison. And uh, as a result of the contacts through his father, this young man had contacts all over the Middle East, Shanghai and Singapore, and in other places, and he knew a lot of wealthy Chinese businessmen. When he graduated from the MBA program at, at Stanford, he went to work for Goldman Sachs, the brokerage in San Francisco, and the first year that he worked for them, he made $100,000. The second year he worked for them, he made $200,000. He was the most productive uh, broker that they had in their firm. He was on the way up. There was no end to the money that he could make. And not only was he making money, but he was wisely investing the money that he was making so that it was multiplying for him. He lived in a beautiful home in San Francisco. He had everything that most people would, uh, would want. And we'd been up here in, in, uh, in Boise about a year, and we got a letter from Lee and Miltini saying that they had decided to go to Dallas Seminary and uh, he wanted to be a pastor. He's now finishing his fourth year at Dallas, and uh, he'll probably be be pastoring a Chinese church either in San Francisco or in Honolulu. He was the young man uh, who invited us to come to to Honolulu last summer. He'll never make much money as a pastor of a Chinese church, but he doesn't care. He was invited by uh, Stanford University to write an article for the alumni paper, the business school uh, paper in which they asked him to, to explain why he changed his vocation. It's a very, very interesting article. You know why he changed his vocation? The, the bottom line was that uh, he, he changed his vocation for the same reason that any MBA graduate would change vocations. He, uh, he got a better offer. He said the benefits were better. The perks were better. That God had called him to do something that satisfied him in a way that nothing else would satisfy. And that went out to all of the MBA graduates of the Stanford Graduate School. And you think that didn't have an impact on people? And you think he's not having an impact today? And will continue to do so because he understands. Not only does he know the price of gold, he knows the value of it. He's got his, got his mind right. He understands. He has his perspective straight. And that's the way we need to look at our possessions. There's nothing wrong with having them. 
But the main thing is to store up treasure in heaven. That's what will ultimately satisfy us. And that's what pleases the heart of God. Let's pray. Father, the world around us deceives us into believing that if we buy their things, we'll, we'll be satisfied. And how easily we fall into that, that deceit. And we see in our own lives and around us the results of, of that lie, Lord, the emptiness, the anxiety, the, the fear and frustration that comes from our obsession with, with money and things. Lord, teach us to, uh, to pursue after righteousness, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and be content with that and with the good things of life that, uh, that you give. Lord, help us to invest our lives wisely. God forbid that we should, should spend our entire lifetime doing things spending our energy and our efforts doing things that that have no eternal significance. Help us, Lord, to store up treasure in in heaven that's lasting, that's enduring. And deliver us, Lord, from the guilt of of our acquisitive, that comes from our acquisitive spirit in the past. We've all fallen into this sort of thing. We're all guilty, Lord. We need to be set free from, from past failure and know that you're the one who can correct our, correct our vision, fill our whole bodies with light, give us the truth and the encouragement that we need to pursue righteousness, no matter what it costs us. And we pray that as a body of believers, Lord, we would, we would be honest in our dealings with people, that we would never defraud anyone, no matter what it costs. It may cost us in terms of our business, that we would pay our debts, that we would, would discharge every obligation that we have to others, and that we would be known in this community as, as men and women of integrity and honesty and honor, that we would be upright, uh, righteous, straight, according to the truth. And Lord, who is sufficient for these things? We thank you that you're the one who has made us sufficient, who's given us what we need to obey. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.